0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: In the winter of 1947, Ireland was buried in snow. Snow filled each hollow and ditch, piled against every hedgerow. It blocked roads and shut down schools. The blizzard seethed for weeks, delivered by an arctic storm that raged and wrathed over the country. My father was nine years old. In the winter of 1947, he shoveled a path to the coop so his mother, my grandmother, could feed the hens. The family lived for weeks on eggs and soda bread. His father, my grandfather, the village postman carried his bicycle on one shoulder and the post bag on the other, wading through ten feet of snow. He died before I was born and was known to me only ever as the postman who waded through ten feet of snow in the winter of 1947 with his bicycle on one shoulder and the postbag on the other. The winter of 1947 was the yardstick. Every snowfall in the next 80 years was judged by its measure. The figure of my grandfather strode through each winter storm. Every snowfall or cold snap was sure to be accompanied by another rendition of the tale, and it grew weary. Our parents' stories are the backdrop on which we make our own. Last winter I awoke on the narrowboat where I had been living in London. I pulled the duvet around my ears. A deep, splintering ricocheted outside. I sat up. Crack. My breath lingered. I wiped the frost off a small portal by the bed. Coots and moorhens walked on the canal. Ducks with heads tucked beneath their wings melted themselves into icy nests. My breath smeared the glass and froze. Crack. The boat rocked shifting in the ice I checked the weather app on my phone minus five degrees today in London taking the duvet with me I shuffled to the galley and consulted my thermometer minus two degrees inside the boat I discarded the duvet and abandoned ship for the refuge of a warm cafe as my fingers warmed I dialed the only number I have ever committed to memory home. Dad spent most of that winter by his stove where few stories could be made, so he had come around to hearing ours. I told him of my ice-bound boat, the ducks that sat in melting ringlets of their own warmth. Of course, it was nothing like the winter of 1947, when the snow was ten feet deep, when the landscape vanished beyond recognition. I walked past King's Cross in the snow, Still recognisable. Damn. I went back to the boat and stepped aboard. Crack. Snow fell, daubing a soft veneer on the ice. A few years ago, I sailed to the Arctic. I piloted a crew among monstrous icebergs sharp as shark's teeth. In the distance, bergs shattered and sheared as fragments tore and tumbled to the sea. The crew held a lookout for growlers. Small bergs that would rip our hull if we took them hard. When I made landfall in Greenland, I wrote Dad a postcard about frozen seas and polar bears, about fogs as thick as the ice they cleared to reveal. My postcard was taken by helicopter to Nunavut, by airplane to Denmark and onward to Ireland within just a few days. There had never been a postal service like it. At least. Not since my grandfather delivered the post through ten feet of snow in the winter of 1947. I stepped inside the canal boat and pulled off my boots. Dad had repeated the basics of fire building on the phone. Pack it tight, not too tight. Get the chimney hot. The kindling crackled. Outside, snow continued to fall and I hoped it would come for days that I would have to break through this ice and dig through snow and have a tale worthy of telling. But instead, I stared into the meagre flames and wondered why my grandfather bothered, through ten feet of snow, bringing his bicycle to deliver the post.
2: intended to fall. But that quiet Sunday afternoon had other plans for me. My friend and I had walked out with our dogs through the inner streets of Dublin, Lombard Street, Arnott Street, Pleasant Street. We crossed the relative calm of Camden Street and chatted our way under the archway through the lane out onto Harcourt Street and into the Ivy Gardens. Our dogs scattered magpies in the sunken lawn, cocked their legs on the fountain's granite sides chased shadows in the rose garden. We entered the Museum of Literature Ireland through a narrow gate, stepped into the secret upper garden and from there down into the Courtyard Café. We ordered blas stuffed with Mediterranean vegetables, warmed our fingers on the steaming coffee cups and smiled and chatted together. How could I have known, walking back up the wide crudeness of Clembrasil Street, that I was headed for a new life, where this day would seem a luxurious past, a precious time that I hadn't known could so easily be taken from me. At the bottom of my road, I turned to say goodbye to my friend. Everything changed in an instant. My foot caught, I tripped, a near writing of my body, then another ferocious flip forward, and I was down, belly flat, on the hard concrete, my left side taking the brunt of the relentless hit. What next? Nausea, a dizziness, a submergence into shock and not knowing what had happened. Sudden movements. My friend was calling an ambulance. A woman appeared from Raymond Street with a blanket. My left hand had curled inwards and pain was escalating in my left shoulder. It was winter. A frost lay on the roofs of cars and smoke rose in circles from the mouths of the group that had now gathered around me. I began to shiver, and the lady who I'd never met before kindly pulled the blanket closer to me. My husband now crouched at my side, propped my head up with pillows and guarded over me. Someone had taken the dog away. Thank you, thank you, was all I could say to everyone. I felt like a defeated actor in a shabby, street-side drama. Everything changes in an instant, The ambulance came and I was eased onto a stretcher, gas pressed into my face. Breathe in, breathe out, keep going. They might have to cut my coat off. But no, hang on, I managed to move in such a way that it was pulled off. I've never seen that coat since, but it must be in some cupboard in our house. It's scuffed arms and front, proof of my accident. The ambulance door bangs shut. The rattling, painful journey to the hospital begins. I had badly broken my left shoulder and left wrist. At least, that's what the ambulance crew were predicting. Later, they were sadly proven to be right. Everything changes. Ahead of me, all the women I have never met before, but soon will. The woman on the ward, who wants to be wheeled out each night to smoke. The lady in pink, with no voice box, who smiles with her eyes. The woman who speaks Mandarin uses Google Translate to talk to the nurses. The blue hospital blankets and the curtains that swish into privacy. The orderly, who wheeled me to the operation in the early hours and kindly stopped so I could view the outside world, admire the spire of Royal Hospital Kilmainham, where I hoped to walk with my dog again. And not forgetting the kind nurse, Angel of St. James's, who showered my hair with lavender shampoo, gently soaked my shattered bones. Months and months of recovery ahead. I would count them off by the painkillers and anti-inflammatories I was to take. By the slow exercises I was to do. Gently raise your shoulders up to your ears. Don't bring your ears to your shoulders. God forbid, do not do that. Sometimes I do exactly that feel my ear brush against my broken shoulder, feel rebellious, free. In an instant, everything changes. How can we know what lies ahead? But before I left my street that afternoon, after the fall, something happens. The ambulance door is flung open and there stands my daughter. Her airman's brown jacket, her blonde curls down to her shoulders – Oh, happiness that seeps through me on seeing her. One glimpse of glory, then she is ushered away and I take off. Every bump sends excruciating pain through my body hits at my points of extreme weakness. But what keeps me buoyant during that terrible journey to accident and emergency? It's her face. My daughter's radiant, unforgettable face. Everything changes, yes. But even recovery feels possible now.
3: The annual New Year gathering in his aunt's house at Usher's Island hasn't really been going too well for Gabriel Conroy, the main protagonist of James Joyce's short story, The Dead. The evening has largely been a series of gaffes and upsets. He's managed to offend Lily, the caretaker's daughter, with a throwaway remark about her love life. He realises too late, he has miscalculated the tone of his after-dinner speech. A mistake from first to last. An utter failure, he thinks. Someone accuses him of being a West Brit because he has no interest in the Irish language. Worse still, he has been unmasked as a regular contributor to, of all things, the Daily Express. Then, just as he's preparing to leave at the end of the party, he sees his wife, Greta, pause at the top of the stairs, and lean on the banisters to listen attentively to one of the guests singing in a nearby room. Gabriel doesn't realise it yet, but the earlier setbacks of the evening are about to pale into insignificance compared to the revelation that will be prompted by the decision of that guest, Bartle Darcy, to sing the heartbreaking ballad The Lass of Ockham. Richard Ellman, Joyce's biographer, claims the slightly ungracious and self-important tenor, Bartle Darcy, of the story, was based on the well-known singer Barton McGuckin. McGuckin was born in Dublin and studied in Armagh and Milan before joining the Carl Rosa Opera Company. Various accounts of his life relate that he achieved a number of firsts. Derek Walsh notes that he was involved in the first broadcast of an opera in Ireland in 1883. A telephone device connecting the Gaiety Theatre to an adjacent room allowed a large crowd to hear him sing in Il Trovatore. Nuala and Macalester Hart, writing in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, says he was the first Irish singer to make a phonograph recording when he recorded Thomas Moore's Avenging and Bright in 1903. Barton McGuckin flits in and out of the newspaper columns of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Given that Joyce describes his fictional counterpart as being reluctant to sing at the aunt's party because of a cold, can't you see that I'm as hoarse as a crow, says Mr. Darcy roughly at one point, it's a curious coincidence that one of these newspaper appearances is in an article headed What They Take for Their Voice. It's a report on how well-known singers and actors stave off sore throats that might affect their performance. Madame Trebelli has a penchant for strawberries, we are informed. Madame Malabran, on the other hand, drinks half a bottle of champagne with her dinner, half an hour before going on stage. Our hero, however, cuts a more sober and ascetic figure. Mr Barton McGuckin carries with him strong smelling salts to ward off incipient coals, the paper informs us tersely. His name also appears in connection with a case in the Dublin courts, Waters versus McGuckin. A widow, Mrs Waters of Charleville House Dundrum, took an action against McGuckin to recover a valuable diamond ring from him that had belonged to her husband. McGuckin claimed that her husband had given him the ring as a token of his admiration while on board the Etruria on a voyage to New York in 1887. A gift he had repeatedly refused, as he had more valuable rings than he knew what to do with, he maintained. Despite his protests, Mr Waters had insisted on pressing the ring into his hand before disembarking, and so McGuckin reluctantly accepted it. The case was eventually settled in favour of the widow. McGuckin was forced to return the ring. This ring-as-a-token incident provides yet another curious overlap between fiction and reality. The Last of Ockham exists in many forms across Ireland and Scotland. There's even a lighter French version from Brittany, where it's known as Germaine. A husband returns from the Crusades after seven years, and his disbelieving wife demands proof of his identity. He produces the broken half of his wedding ring that matches perfectly the other half she has kept safely while he was away. And, naturally, because they're French, they live happily ever after. But just as Barton McGuckin found himself in some difficulty because of a ring so too does the girl in Bartle Darcy's song. Most Irish and Scottish versions are songs of betrayal and rejection. In a version collected in Tyrrell's Pass around 1830, the callous Gregory challenges the poor lass who calls at his house with their child on a miserable night to establish her identity. If you be the lass of Ockram as I suppose you not to be. Come, tell me the last token between you and me. She replies, Gregory, don't you remember one night on the hill when we swapped rings off each other's hands sorely against my will? Mine was of beaten gold. Yours was but black tin. As with Gabriel Conroy, At the End of the Dead, it's about discovering that the person you loved, and may always love, is not quite who you thought they were.
4: The Three of Us We were three. We had schooled together, gamed together, then laboured together, shared our dreams and longings. As we grew a little older, we knew there must be something beyond the scurry for wealth, comfort and honour, for that was all we could see about us. We were incomplete. At times, we remonstrated with others before the government offices, shouting our demand for peace, equality, justice. We knew the harshest winds came buffeting from the east, hot, dry sands scratching against our skin. We wished then for the reassuring surges of the sea, though we lived in a dry land, and suffered the grinding demands of heat. Yet it was not the ocean we dreamed of, but waves of grasses under the breeze and gracious meadows awash with flowers. We grew terrified that, in time, we would surely find within our hearts an emptiness, a well run dry and holding only woodlice and weevils in its depths. I can recall the evening We three were together, musing peacefully, as the setting sun was turning the whole of the western sky a richly damson glow, creating a warm and vivid light such as we had never seen before. We felt some great thing was to be revealed, perhaps even a voice calling from some realm beyond time and space. We three fell silent, knowing that we, with the light, with the stars, would burn out and leave but ash or shapeless stone. Unless, unless... We were sitting under the juniper tree, a fatuous trinity. It was a crisis moment, for we knew that in our time and place the sun seemed nailed to the taut blue of the sky over our land. And yet in us... A strong sense of darkness pervaded our days. How could we sit still, useless, while wars flooded the plains, leaving only pain and the broadcast seeds of further wars? Our gods were foolish, fleshless. They were of our own making. And because we do not live by reason only, we dreamed of a wisdom to be unearthed, beyond the rim of folly. We made our decision there and then, to rise up, leave our dying land, and seek some understanding in the world beyond our borders. We would face, in hope and friendship, the challenges of the unknown. Within days, we were heading west, scared, seeking. The elders, snickering in the corners, told us we were merely joining the community of the irrational. What we were leaving behind could never be stitched back together again. But we did not care about the past. We faced into a new and vibrant future. We pressed on, days, weeks into months, sometimes wearying, sometimes enthused. Beyond a low ridge of mountains, we came down at last into a valley where we found waves of grasses under the breeze and gracious meadows awash with flowers. We crossed a wide river where we saw the flight of egrets, the branches of great trees bending down to sup the clear water. A skylark trilled its self-delighting song. The green of the pastures seemed made of emerald, Shepherds herded great flocks of sheep, and we heard the dull sound of cowbells coming from small homesteads. Then we paused, drawn to the open door of a humble building, where we might beg a drink of water. What we had found was a small home, impoverished. An inner room, a boy-child, newborn and mewling, a mother, plainly beautiful and smiling. A robust father, but welcoming. It was a propitious place, against all reason. To do with timelessness, yet with urgency. A notion of what might be possible, old simplicity, kindliness and care. We sensed, among the ordered poverty of the room, what seemed a nothingness, a stillness, that yet appeared in everything, a contentment of heart, and rest at last. Gifts? No. We had only our hearts. Only words that poor family could not understand, but we received much in return. We sensed ourselves, accepted. I felt I had to move deeper inside myself, to find within me that simple loving-kindness, that centering, a response to some impulse emanating from the child then nourished and nourishing at the mother's breast. Afterwards, we stood outside, exalted, from a dim corner, a source of light, in our bleak hearts, a galaxy of hope. When we learned then of a Herod, a dictator, that in this land too there was the washed-out dependency on violence, we turned for home. The sky was clear, the way straight, but we knew the going back would be the most difficult journey of all.
1: El
5: Greco, 1971. At the end of the night, when all bills had been paid, Frixot, the owner, would come from the tiny bar and play the bouzouki for the diners who lingered over their Kona coffee and brandy. Sometimes he opened a bottle of Comandaria dessert wine and treated whoever was there. He gave me a bottle that Christmas, which we liked, But nobody at home liked the Retsina, which he also gave me. He sang, too, and his voice was mellow. On nights when there was no band, we put a record player on the stage and played the soundtrack of Zorba the Greek. It was scratchy and made Anthony Quinn's voice even rougher than it was in reality. But what's reality when all this happened long ago and only a few remember it? Well, Frick's was real, and Valt's was real, and the bowl of water with cubes of butter that I rolled into intricately carved spheres for every table in the restaurant, that bowl was real. And the night I spilled peas over Mr Apple while eating the meat off the skewer of his kebab, that was real. There's so much more, of course. The smoke of our cigarettes behind the curtain that hid us from the diner's, The long drags we took before emerging to clear a plate, reset a table or answer a polite request, they were real. And the foundation stones on the ground floor, black marble, each with the name of a Burton's partner, they were real too. But far below El Greco, which was up a red carpet, on the fresh floor.
0: The Winter Pony The boy leans back in the two-wheeled sulky, reins slipped between finger and thumb. His pony trots, fetlocks high, the cobalt hooves are cracking along. I imagine dizzying sparks that spit through the fog drift as they speed past Christmas-lit homes and trees, birch and oak, a grey shimmer of stars, branches splayed to fingerlets. The crack and whirr of hooves and wheels recede, then silence falls. What remains is the long yawn back to fallowness, This Monday morning's grey road, grey fields, grey house, remote from summer's deep rustle, its tussled length of hours. Only this, the small pony and boy, now swallowed in time, a slow iced air breathing from the north, roots entwined in the dark earth.
6: On Sunday Miscellany today, we heard Winter 1947. That was by Alexander McMaster. Ender Wiley brought us Then I Saw Her Face. Mine was of beaten gold. Yours was but black tin, was from Connell Hamill. John F. Dean gave us The Three of Us. And El Greco, 1971, was a poem by Michael O'Connor. We also had a poem from Mary O'Donnell called The Winter Pony. The music offerings this morning included Children's Corner Suite, The Snow Is Dancing by Debussy, played by Finian Collins. Dedicated to The One I Love was, of course, from the Mamas and the Papas. And Finbar and Angela Wright performed The Lass of Ockram. We Three Kings was arranged and played by Seamus Egan on whistle and Jamshid Sharifi on percussion. And Zorba's Dance at the end there was from the soundtrack to Zorba the Greek by Mikas Theodorakis. Just to let you know as well that John F. Dean's selected and new poems are published by Carcanet. And Michael O'Connor's poem is included in the latest anthology from this programme. It's called Sunday Miscellany, a selection 2018 to 2023, which is published by New Island Books. And the programme's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And of course, you can listen back to the programme by going to the RTE Radio app or going to the Sunday Miscellany section of our website, rte.ie forward slash radio one.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.